I would be disappointed if we started relying on technology on a permanent basis after this pandemic as much as we do now, because it really is a poor substitute for face-to-face, true interaction, but it's a substitute. Hello and welcome to Good is in the Details. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 3. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski. And today we're going to be talking about psychology and social distancing. Our guest is psychology professor from Loyola Marymount University, Dr. Maura Ford, and she will be talking about attachment theory, how our relationships with our parents then influence our relationships later in life. And then she'll discuss her research on the moods, the habits, the changes as a result of social distancing. Are we ever going to go back to a normal? What role is technology playing? Is it good or is it harmful? The guest host will be Rudy Sallow, the very talented, very witty LA lawyer, as always. And if you have any questions about this episode or previous episodes or any thoughts, concerns, you can get in touch on Instagram at goodisinthedetailspod or email goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. Just before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to say something about... This past weekend, as I was editing, there was the news of Justice Ginsburg's death. And since this podcast talks about, you know, what is the good life and examining that, I wanted to just take a moment to acknowledge this incredible woman and the inspiration and that her life as really a tribute to loving, to caring, to dedication to hard work and how incredible it is for one person's work to make such a difference. And I hope that we can look at her as an inspiration because what I'm seeing in the news right now is that we're talking about her death as a seat opening. And there's something kind of troubling about that, about just reducing her to a seat to move or halt or do things politically. Let's just take a second to acknowledge the wisdom, the brilliance, and the energy and just stand back and be inspired about what one person's work can do. And maybe think about that in our own lives. What can you do? What can you challenge? What can you create? Because one person's life really can make a big difference. So now we'll get to the show. Let's talk psychology. Rudy, you're going to love this because Moira is writing about the impacts of social distancing. Moira, so your background is in psychology. Um, was it also statistics or was it? Yeah. So okay. I, um, because I do research on close relationships, you end up collecting data that requires some, you know, more sophisticated statistical analyses because um, you violate some assumptions of, of our basic statistical analyses, especially if you have couples in the lab and you have two people that you are measuring responses from. So I got a, an emphasis in statistics. Since we're saying that people just love discussions about relationships, have you noticed what do your students gravitate toward? Is there a particular area that they seem most interested in? You know, my students love, when I teach my close relationships class, they love attachment theory. And attachment theory is 
to be differentiated from attachment parenting. There have been books on attachment parenting that are sometimes related to the research in attachment theory, sometimes not. But attachment theory just has to do with the fact that we're all social beings and that we learn a lot of our social behaviors, tendencies, habits, etc., via our relationships with our parents. We were and still are, babies are born at a stage where they can't fend for themselves. And it is important that we have this hardwired caregiving system, parents, an attachment system in the baby that allows for bonding. And there's been a lot of work um, suggesting that parents have this caregiving system, which is sort of a cognitive system that leads parents to be motivated to care for their child. And the child has a complementary attachment system, again, a cognitive system that leads the child to engage in behaviors that elicit caregiving from the parent. And pattern that the parent uses in caring for the child can affect what the child learns to expect from relationships. So if you have a parent who is very responsive, their caregiving style is very responsive, which means that they note the child's needs and they respond to the child's true needs. That doesn't mean that they respond to every want, but they respond to the child's true needs. Those kids end up growing up to have a more secure attachment. So in childhood and oftentimes in adulthood, they engage in behaviors that suggest that they are comfortable in relationships. They're comfortable getting close to others. They are confident that they're worthy and lovable. And these are all really healthy behaviors. What we see in relationships where maybe a parent is more neglectful, and I don't even mean truly neglectful in the way that, you know, we might think legally, but neglectful in terms of not responding to a child's emotional needs. These kids basically learn, well, I just need to be independent. You know, no matter what I do, I'm not necessarily going to have my needs responded to. So these kids end up being independent, self-sufficient, and are not comfortable with closeness. And some of that for many years, researchers said, well, maybe that's okay. Maybe this is, these are just self-sufficient kids. But as our research methods have become more advanced and we've been able to measure things like stress hormones, we see that, no, these kids, they're acting independent. They're acting like they're okay doing things on their own and their stress hormones are spiked. So mm-hmm. it's not just that this is, you know, something healthy for them. It's healthy in that it's adaptive, but it's causing them difficulty. And then the third category would be when parents or a child's primary caregiver is inconsistent, sometimes neglecting, sometimes really responsive. Those kids learn that they really need to demand. They really need to demand so that the parent notices their needs. Usually this is in cases where the parent is responsive to the child when the parent has their own needs met, but when the parent has their own stressors, they aren't responsive to the child. They don't notice the child's needs. As adults, we tend to carry these attachment styles into adulthood. They can be modified and updated. That anxious attachment, for example, as adults tends to manifest itself in things like jealousy or insecurity, whereby partners tend to doubt their partner's affections, tend to worry that their partners will be inconsistently there for them, and tend to engage in behaviors that sort of demand the partner's attention. So Bowlby, um, the creator of attachment theory actually said that attachment operates from the cradle to the grave. And for many years, it was only researched essentially in the cradle with young children. But starting in the 80s, really, it became much more common. In fact, there was a big boom in attachment research. And people started to look at, wait a minute, do these patterns that we learn from our 
interactions with our primary caregiver carry into our later very close relationships, like romantic relationships. And it turns out that they do, but the correlation is not a perfect correlation. We can modify and update. And that's something I always try to impress upon my students. I always say, because I have them do an attachment questionnaire, and sometimes they see that they're anxiously attached or they're, avoid they're high in avoidance. And I say, this is not a problem. It's common, first of all. 40% of people tend to be anxiously attached or avoidantly attached, and it can be updated over time with changing the way you think about things, with a partner who's really responsive and sort of alleviates some of your insecurities. How does, um, I know that Buddhism has a different kind of approach to attachment. Not that I'm a uh, Buddhist or any way to shape or form, but I've certainly in my own uh, self-help or, or whatever, or anything that I've tried to explore to, to address any of my own personal issues, I know that uh, having attachment or being attached to something or anything or to a person is what they say where a lot of pain comes from. In fact, I have a friend that's in Mexico right now. I think he's a, he's, he's a Buddhist monk uh, living a pretty austere life. And he's in every six months or something, he sends me these, um, these bookmarks with, uh, with Buddhist sayings. And this one is the, the, the one I've uh, kind of been using a lot. And it says from attachment, anger and ignorance all suffering trans migrators arise. So that, that's some kind of bold statement that I kind of take, hey, if you're really attached to something, you're putting a lot of your, your, your self-worth or a lot of your value into that person or into that something, you're going to set yourself up for a disaster. How's that different from the attachment theory that you're talking about? Yeah. So I feel like it's just a, a different perspective. And I'm a little bit familiar with the Buddhist perspective. And I'm also familiar, you know, working here at a Jesuit university with the, the um, Ignatian perspective on it, which is very similar, that you want to avoid attachments. Now, from the Ignatian perspective, my understanding is that they're talking about attachments, not necessarily to people, but attachments to things or attachments to expectations or attachments to goals or plans where things might change. And, you know, encouraging some degree of, of flexibility, but that isn't the entire story. I think psychologists approach it just from a, a different perspective. Instead of looking at, you know, your spiritual well-being, psychologists are tending to look at it in terms of we are, especially social psychologists like me, we are social beings. And these things are good for us. These attachments, these social attachments are good for us. It would actually be really interesting to see if any philosopher or theologian has written about these attachments to other people in terms of the spiritual perspective. Um, Philosophers are not attached to people. <laughs> I was like, that, you know, that, when there's with this pandemic, that, philosophers that's, that's, that's are like, we've been line. studying, we've been ready for this. Which, <laughs> like, what do you mean? What do you mean we can't go outside? We haven't been going outside. Yeah, no, that is there's no, no tan lines here. No philosopher no. has a tan line. I, 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 uh, I make fun of Gwen and all, and all philosophers for never answering questions or always just kind of throwing out these lofty things and be like, oh, right. well, what do you think? She literally finally said the most truthful thing <laughs> that I've ever heard her say on this entire show or in our entire friendship. So that's a new tagline for this. So thank you, Gwen. Thank you. I'm rubbing off on you. This is good. Uh, I, have, I have a question. Since the attachment theory got to be quite big in the 80s and we, you see that there can be movement, it seems almost like in a positive way, but I'm wondering mm -hmm. what has social media done? Mm. Can that take that in a negative way? So for example, I am not a jealous person, but 
because of social media, I would be lying if I didn't say that seeing some images have actually sparked a sense of jealousy in me that I would have never experienced before. So yeah. I, how are people responding to attachment theories when it comes to mm-hmm. You can't detach. So if you are normally an independent person, but if you are getting on social media, then it's actually creating you to be more needy. Or if you're already needy in the first place, it seems to magnify that. What role has this played? Yeah. So attachment theory is based in evolutionary theory and the idea that, you know, we're as a species, we're born very immature. We're born, you know, at a stage where we can't take care of ourselves at all. And so these things are necessary for us, first of all, to survive and survive to reproductive age so we can pass on our genes, etc. Social media was not around in the environment we were evolving in. So I feel like this is something that we are not prepared for. It's an example of the world changing more quickly than we as people can change. I always tell my kids when they're, they're spending a lot of time on social media and I say, you know, this isn't great for you. I said, we didn't evolve to be knowing exactly what our friends are doing at every minute, every day, or to be knowing if our friend went out with another friend and didn't invite us along. This is just not information we would normally be privy to in an environment without this technology. So I think it does cause some problems because we're getting information in almost this um, artificial way. And we're getting information, way more information than we can handle. And we're getting the information that can be hurtful, especially if we don't have the full context. We might have the full context if we had a conversation with someone about it. But when you just see the picture of your friend out with, you know, your, your other best friend and they didn't invite you along, you don't have any of the context or anything. And so I, I think social media, I think it's, especially right now in the pandemic. I think it's great in that it's a safe way for people to interact, but I think it it has, there are a lot of deficits. There are a lot of problems with it. Also, the fact that you get information without the proper nonverbal cues that we also spend a long, long, long time evolving to process. And now you're getting this sort of decontextualized tech, just text. And we are not very good at looking at only verbal information and really figuring out what that information means, mm-hmm. especially with regard to human communication, it, you know, about more personal issues, relationship issues, et cetera. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what you're working on right now is the yeah. impact of social distancing on our relationships. So from what I understand, you started with a sample with people who are younger. Was it the 18 range? Or yeah. actually tell me, what, what led to you embark on this? Because I guess just because we're all in the pandemic, this obviously mm-hmm. must be on your mind of what is this doing to relationships? Yeah. So what I study primarily is social exclusion and rejection. And how do people respond when there's a threat to their sense of belonging or their sense of being accepted by others? And I thought the pandemic was sort of interesting, an interesting context to study that in, because your sense of self-worth isn't necessarily being called into question. We're not spending time with others and we may be feeling ostracized and excluded, but it's not because others are rejecting us. It's because we've been told this is unsafe, stay home, etc. So I thought it would be interesting to see 
is this social distancing still leading to the negative outcomes that we know are true when people are feeling ostracized, rejected, excluded? Um, and I did a daily diary study where participants fill out questionnaires every night. I did it for three days. It was during the course of the pandemic, and I measured a couple of uh, several things. One thing I measured was did they socially distance on a given day? And then I also measured a variety of outcome variables, their mood, their engagement in healthy behaviors like exercising, eating healthfully, spending some time outside. And I also looked at whether they felt like they were getting social support and whether they reached out to other people using technology. And what I found was that when people were better about socially distancing, which is something that we need to do, that we should be doing, they did have more negative outcomes. They didn't engage in healthy behaviors. They were more likely to have negative mood. They felt more stressed. They also felt like they were getting less social support and they reached out to others less on technology, which would be a really safe way for them to be able to get some social support. And they did report more physical symptoms also. They reported more stress-related physical symptoms, just you know, not feeling great, which we know is often a response to a social stressor, like you know, feeling excluded. So, you know, that data suggests that this pandemic and the social distancing that we're engaging in as a result of the pandemic has some negative effects. I mean, it's necessary, but it does have negative effects. And it has, I, I looked at this in college students. These, keep in mind, were students who just had their school year abruptly ended, and many of them had to move home. So they really did have their lives thrown up in the air. And, you know, we saw that all of this was very difficult for them. But what's interesting is they didn't look worse on days where they were not socially distancing. All of this was very difficult for them to deal with on the days when they were social distancing. That's when their outcomes looked worse. I was thinking about the exercise one. I know for me, just a shout out to Pendulum and also to PJ, who's doing, they're doing their exercise stuff over Zoom. And that's been extremely helpful. And as I was looking over your work, it really dawned on me the last couple of days, it has been um, nearly 100 degrees outside. And so I haven't been able to take a walk with my daughter, which is what I do every day. And not getting that, I could feel affected my mood, just not being able to go for that stroll because it's just too dangerous in this heat. And I was yeah. reading it, reading what you said, and I'm like, oh my God, it's true. I mean, my mood was really affected by, for the first time, I felt really, really, really trapped. I was also thinking as I was reading your research, I'm looking at the age frame and I started to think, what do you think it would look like for, let's say, senior citizens? Yeah, actually, loneliness is, you know, a big area of research that has been investigated with senior citizens um, and all ages. They actually surprisingly tend to report lower levels of loneliness than younger people. And what senior citizens tend to do is prune their social networks. So they have smaller social networks but they're much closer relationships with those that they do have relationships with. You know, in this regard with, with the pandemic, I think they would probably still be keeping up those close relationships pretty well, as opposed to our college students, for example, who a lot of their interactions are just people they walk by on campus, etc. I feel like senior citizens, most of their relationships are these much closer relationships that they are going to be motivated to maintain via technology or things like that. That said, they are also certainly more at risk with regard to the coronavirus. So they may be dialing back a lot more and getting a lot less 
of the healthy outside time, exercise, things like that, I could actually see it going either way. I could see it going, um, it, you know, when somebody does do this research in the direction that they're doing okay because they are maintaining those relationships that tend to be the closer ones that offer us more support and boost our outcomes. But they may really be cutting back on those little day-to-day -day interactions, getting out uh, and getting outside, interacting with people at the grocery store, et cetera. And that may have some negative effects. I can speak just a, a little bit to that in the fact that my parents, who, you know, they're senior citizens, they're in their seventies. Um, we see them once or twice a week. And I know they see that my sister's family and that's pretty much it, right? They definitely communicate with their friends and their family via phone actually quite well. So uh, at least, at least once a week, but because they are at risk, because they're older, my wife and I, are making decisions about how many people we see and whether or not we're gonna send our daughter to nursery school because we know how important it is that my parents see you know, their grandchildren and they have that interaction. So in fact, the people that are middle-aged, which is me, the pandemic, and if you have senior citizens, some of the choices that you're making is you're whittling down your social contact or your young children's social contact in order to protect more senior citizens. I mean, yeah. I know that's not everybody. I'm just, that's just one example of how the pandemic is affecting our lives. Um, I mean, there's millions of examples of how I can explain it, but I'm sure there are other parents out there, parents with younger children that might be whittling down their contact. Oh, yeah. If they're lucky enough to have grandparents around, grandparents alive, grandparents coming to visit, because, you know, let's, let's just be honest, we don't know how long we're going to be able to mm -hmm. see those grandparents. So we want to maximize that time. I'm just curious if that came up in any of your studies at all. So that didn't come up. I didn't see that in any research, but certainly, like you said, I, I know many people who are doing the same thing you're doing. I'm doing it with, you know, with my kids too, either being extra super duper careful before we see, you know, one of, usually it's my mom, she lives the closest. Or if my kids, you know, did one of my kids did have like an outdoor, you know, hang out at the beach with a friend, then okay, we won't see my mom for a couple of weeks because we don't want to, we just want to be super careful. So I haven't seen that in the research, but certainly, certainly the anecdotes suggest that a lot of people are doing that. Yeah. And do you, uh, okay. I know you don't have a crystal ball. I don't have a crystal ball. Gwen has a crystal ball because she has magical powers, but she doesn't share it on her <laughs> podcast. But okay, vaccine comes out. Yeah. Uh, enough people get vaccinated. Do you think our lives ever even go back to normal? Because I, I don't. Talked, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I have talked about this so much with my husband and with friends who we do regular Zoom calls with. There are so many habits we are changing right now. Like my husband and I have talked about the fact that Will we ever shake someone's hand again? You know, I, I don't think so. <laughs> Will we ever, you know, go to somebody's house and um, right off the bat, you know, hug everybody as we say hello? Maybe not. Or maybe it'll take several years. Although I'm reading a book on the 1918 pandemic right now. And, Which one? Which one? Are you um, oh, the one... My wife's reading one right now, and she is yeah. her, her every night. She's like, oh, you got to read this passage. And, and I think yeah. it's the one. I think it's called... Uh, yeah. 
Like everyone's reading it. The one that everyone's reading it. It is the one by the um, by the historian in New yeah. Orleans. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes. I, I, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name of it, but I think it's called The Great Pandemic. The Great Pandemic. That's actually yeah. what it's called. It is yeah. The Great Pandemic. Yes. And, um, you know, what I'm seeing in that is they had really similar responses to the responses that we're engaging in now. But here we are few generations later and all of that has been wiped away. So I write for Forbes.com. I'm a contributor. And what I pointed out in my last article for listeners out there, for anybody who wants to, you know, read it, I'm trying to get as many views as possible, is there is a one major, major, major difference between this yeah. pandemic and that one. Well, number this number one, this is a coronavirus that was influenza. But put aside all, all that, the internet. There was no yeah. internet in 1918. The cities were still the epicenters of economy. If you wanted to communicate with people, you still had to see them. Telephones weren't around, you know, as much. Television. So we might get enough Mm -hmm. social interaction through Zoom, through these phone calls to where we stretch out our, um, where these habits of, of distancing for people stretch out for years, perhaps decades, because we have this, like, nah, it's cool. You know what? I know Gwen threatened to hug me over social media. I was just going to say, this is wishful thinking, Rudy. Yes. She, she threatened to hug me over. Rudy just doesn't want to ever have to deal with a handshake ever again. He doesn't have to deal with the, Rudy is an extrovert who doesn't like handshakes and I'm an introvert who hugs everybody. Yeah, no, she, she, she nailed it. I've always hated handshakes, but so I do Rudy's think that, just like this is wishful thinking. He's like, can we keep this? Yeah, I, I, it's true. <laughs> You're like a but, kid with a new puppy. Like, can we keep it? The the, <laughs> the 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 internet is something that if you don't take that into account, you're literally burying your head in the sand. Yeah. My point is we have no idea what's going to happen. We can't look yeah. to the past. The past is not that helpful because we, I called the, inter- the internet a delayed black swan event for cities and for human interaction. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I mean, I talk about this in my close relationships class with my students. We spend some time doing a deep dive into technology and close relationships and uh, their costs and benefits. And the research bears that out that I would be disappointed if we started relying on technology on a permanent basis after this pandemic as much as we do now, because it really is a poor substitute for face-to-face, true interaction, but it's a substitute. And at times where this is our only option, it's great. It is so much better than not having interactions. Like you said, during the pandemic, I mean, you're, you know, that was true isolation, the 1918 pandemic, but it's just, it tends to not be not have the same depth. Things like Zoom calls, and certainly the kind of interaction varies. Things like Zoom calls, you can have more depth. You can have a deep conversation, you can share, etc. But I feel like a lot of what we're using to keep in touch with others right now is sort of superficial. So text or, you know, responding to posts on Facebook, etc. You're not going to get into anything of depth in that sort of medium. And I worry that if we start to replace face-to-face interactions where you do have a lot more opportunity for depth with a lot of just quick check-ins that we're going to lose something important. And already in this day and age compared to, you know, 30, 40 years ago, people report feeling a lot more lonely. People report feeling like they don't have true confidants, which suggests something about the nature of relationships as we've progressed through different technologies in the last several decades. Have you done anything on interpersonal relationships? And the reason why I ask is because actually, Rudy, you called this. I think 
at the very beginning of this lockdown period, people were joking around that there was going to be this baby boom. And mm -hmm. Rudy said, you know what? No, I think couples are not going to make it. And then yeah. the, the other day in the LA Times, and I'll link this in the show notes along with your Forbes article and the great <laughs> pandemic book. In the LA Times, there was an op-ed piece by Virginia Hefferman that was saying that there will be fewer babies born because people are having less sex. And the mm -hmm. reason is because they're depressed or they're yeah. not, um, the ins there's more insecurity going on. There's, there's less recreational sex. And that not only that, because of the not letting as many immigrants come in, that there's yeah. going to be a real decline in the population. So people not having sex and then uh, so no more babies or fewer babies, which is already on a decline and then less immigration. So aside from friendships, are you finding anything about, you know, married couples or, mm -hmm. or people who live together in romantic relationships? The data comes out so slowly. So we won't really know how the pandemic is affecting couples. We won't have a good sense, I would say for like a year, because it's so slow collecting data, then you, you know, you get it peer reviewed, of course, and the publication process takes a while. So I don't have a good database answer to that. Um, but you know, I do certainly know that I'm reading articles similar to the one you're describing. And I'm reading articles suggesting that couples are having more conflict, because these are more anecdotally based articles, not research based, but couples are having more conflict because they're spending so much time together. And um, in fact, as I was driving this morning, listening to the radio, the DJs were talking about that. They were talking about these wedding, you know, different weddings that they had been invited to that had to be canceled because of the pandemic and then suddenly became canceled indefinitely. <laughs> and, oh, you know, and yeah, and they were saying, God, is this because people are, you know, being forced to spend so much time together? It's a hard thing to do. We know that Anytime people become more interdependent on each other, conflict increases. And it's not necessarily a bad thing if you handle it well, but I would expect during this time that conflict is increasing. I mean, that is such a well-established finding that the more interdependent you become, the more conflict increases. And money is a factor. It was also saying because yeah. people, you know, so people are stressed about their work and then that's also what's, it's not only not seeing friends, but it's job insecurity that then is harming the intimate relationships. Yeah. And anytime you have increased anxiety, increased depression, and I saw both of those specific items in my, um, in my survey, increase. People reported feeling more anxious mood, more depressed mood. Anytime you have that increase, that hits libido, you know, like nobody's business. So I would certainly expect if people are anxious, if people are, are feeling a little depressed. And based on the people I see around me, everybody is feeling anxious about this, whether they, even people who who have not had their livelihoods affected, who have not lost their job, it's still a big source of anxiety. The other thing I think because we're a little bit more disconnected because of the pandemic, we're relying on the, you know, if you're living with a romantic partner, you're relying more on that romantic partner for all of your support, as opposed to seeing other people, you know, like there would be times where, um, I would be at work and I would get support with regard to a work-related problem from my colleagues who were walking by, et cetera. Now my colleagues aren't walking by. I'm at home working at the kitchen table. So, you know, my husband is the one who gets all of my bids for support. And same thing, you know, with me, I get all of his bids for support. And that's an additional burden for a spouse. We know that that's difficult for a spouse to feel like they are the only source of support for a partner. I did predict a lot of 
the things that Gwen said about, you know, I, I thought a couple, a couple of months alone with, with any amount of children that you have will lead you yeah. not to have any more children. It'll lead you to, uh, you know, it'll drive you crazy. And, uh, you know, and, I, and of course divorces, I mean, I think a lot of people these days are, are just stuck either. They don't have a job or they're not, they, they know they have to live in the same house and kind of yeah. help manage everything because of the pandemic. Interestingly enough, I'm aware of at least two to three couples that were, you know, had some major issues and could have been on the outs, but because of the pandemic and they kind of, you know, repatched things up and things are going in the right direction. So it's not all doom and gloom. Like I I have heard of positive stories as well of, well, we're going to be here for a couple of years maybe it's time to, you know, really, really work some things out yeah. and, you know, so far so good. So it's, yeah. it's not all doom and gloom. That said, I don't even think, just like you said earlier, the data is very slow to come out until there is a vaccine and until the economy gets a better footing, until, until things, you know, move forward in the right direction, we won't really know the damage to relationships. Yeah. We won't really know the true number of forces that would have occurred, but for, you know, people yeah. didn't, couldn't afford it or, or couldn't move out or anything during the pandemic. So it's like, yeah. we just don't know. But it's not all doom and gloom for whatever that's worth. Professor Ford, what can people, um, when just, just for the layperson who's listening and they yeah. say, oh, okay, I'm going through some of these symptoms from your research or what advice mm-hmm. can you give? And we'll wrap up with this. What advice can you give sure. to people who are suffering? and to yeah. how to get out of that rut. Mm-hmm. I would say, it, it, I guess it depends on what sort of suffering. If we're talking about feeling intense anxiety, I think therapy can be helpful. What I would say is changing the way you think about things can be helpful, but that's hard to do on your own. Oftentimes you need somebody who is looking in from an outside perspective to help identify the ways that you're thinking that may not be fully based in logic and may be extreme and may be increasing your anxiety. Also keeping in mind that you have control over your responses to this pandemic. You don't necessarily have control over the pandemic. I don't have control over whether when I went to the grocery store, I might've touched something that somebody with COVID had touched, but I do have control over the fact that when I walk out the door, I can hand sanitize and I can do what's possible to minimize my chances of picking it up. With regard to the difficulty of being at home, either at home alone or at home with a group of people that you're not getting a break from, um, I would say those are two very different scenarios that are both difficult. So I would say if you are struggling with being at home alone, use your technology to interact. Interact in safe ways face-to-face. Go, um, you know, go have a sit in the backyard with somebody, sit in a park on chairs, socially distanced and with masks on with somebody in a way where you can feel safe, but you're getting outdoors. You're getting, getting face-to-face interaction. If you're struggling because you're at home and you're with a group of people, with a family, you know, your family members, let's say, and you're not getting a break, give yourself those little breaks. Go for a walk, you know, just do what you need to do to give yourself that little, um, I call it my introvert time. You know, I need, I need a little bit of introvert time. I just need a little time to be by myself. Also, uh, something Rudy said was really caught my attention. You were talking about, we don't know 
how well we will really have dealt with this, especially with regard to how well relationships will have fared during the pandemic until we're out of it. And I would say we need to be really intentional about how we transition out once there is a vaccine or we have herd immunity or whatever the case may be. We got thrown into this. There was no transition in and it was tough. We might need to think ahead to how we will transition out. And when we do transition out, keep in mind that getting thrown into something is not the best way. Uh, we're not going to cope well with that. So transition out slowly. You know, we, we can't go from 20 miles per hour to 60 miles per hour in a snap. We're going to have to slowly transition back to being the kind of society that we want to be, not necessarily the exact same society we were before. You're right. We do need to be intentional about how we and our families and our friends, you know, get together and, and feel safe in, in moving forward with whatever our new life is. One thing that I do, Gwen, and I'll tie this since I'm the transportation guy, I wish I could do it more, but it's one of the safest things you can do and really feel like you're going out there is jump in your car and go for a drive. Put on your favorite album. You know, I, I've been listening a lot to The Who. They're my favorite. I've been putting on a couple of their albums yeah. and I've been every once a month, because that's the only time I actually have the time to do that, I'm um, yeah. allowed to leave. I jump in the car for a couple of hours and I and I drive and just yeah. listen to some music. I put down the phone and it's great. I mean, it, in fact, I'm writing a little bit about, you know, the, the art of the drive or the, or the therapy of the drive. You don't know this about me. I was this big public transportation junkie. Like I only rode and talked about public transportation. Uh -huh. I was anti-car and then the pandemic hit and I have evolved into loving the car again. And so it's just, it's kind of a funny little sub thing on the show. That's a recommendation, Gwen. I know it's yeah. it's difficult with kids. Um, hey, you know what? When we started the show, I did not know I was pregnant. So there's definitely been some changes. It is, it is difficult with kids. And that's why I'm only able to do it once a month with a wife that's on call and everything. But yeah. I'm hoping to do it more. Just note, it's very, there are no open bathrooms. So you got to bring yes. hand sanitizer. You got to plan ahead. You got to plan everything because don't expect to just go into someplace. Things are shut down right now. So you do need to be intentional about your drives and if you're taking any road trips as well. But that's what I've been yeah. doing. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is make a clear break from work. I don't know if you guys have found this, but I've found that it's so easy to open up my laptop multiple yes. times on the weekend, in the evenings, because I have my work set up right at the kitchen table. And, you know, I finish dinner and I think, oh, why don't I just finish that? And, uh, and then you never really get off time. You're always sort of churning through work. And I think a lot of us are dealing with that. And that's another effect of the pandemic that that's going to increase anxiety, increase just exhaustion and burnout. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that's something that I you know, before the pandemic that I had to be more aware of, you know, just telling students that they can email me and whatnot. And then I had to say, no, wait, there is a time in which I will check my work email and then I'm not going to do it anymore because now it can happen because of the phone, the mobile phone. You can just, yeah. you know, be at line at Trader Joe's or something and get an email that's work related. So I think that that's even more important now that our homes have now transitioned into the everyday space. Yeah. Okay. Well, Professor Ford, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I'm excited about your work and I think that this will be really helpful for people. I think a lot of people are going through stuff where, you know, the socially distanced thing is affecting them and it's just really nice to know, okay, wait, it's normal. This is going on. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. I it was 
really enjoyable, and I hope that you stay safe and healthy during the pandemic. Thank you both, and I hope you both stay safe and healthy. And you know what, Gwendolyn, I'll find a good book on attachment, and I'll send you um, information about it in case you want to post that as a resource on, you know, on your podcast. Okay, great. I love it. All right. Well, have a good day. All right. You both have a great day, too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. I will be linking in the show notes the articles that we mentioned, the Forbes article by Rudy Salo, the LA Times op-ed piece, and a link to the book, The Great Pandemic. I will also link our Patreon page if you would like to support the show. Any support is helpful. $2, $5, $10, and you get extra content, bonus content. I mean, and you get to support the show that you're listening to and enjoying. Or if you also want to help the show, rating and reviewing really does a lot. Again, feel free to get in touch. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. I also want to encourage um, if you have any questions, if any of you have seen this documentary, The Social Dilemma, we're going to have comedian Aaron Darling Torelva on the show once again. And in a couple weeks, that will be one of the topics that we discuss is this Netflix documentary. So if you have any thoughts about the documentary that you would like to have included in that discussion, please email and we'll discuss it. And let me know if you want your name mentioned as well. Okay, so wear your masks, socially distance, take care of each other. And until next time, bye.